are continuing, my friends, on our journey together. We are talking about absolutes of a Christ-like army. Today, we're going to go on a different path. I remember when I was young, I was like junior high school. You know when you're in junior high, and especially if you're a dude or you're really like self-conscious about being an athlete. Anybody was like that with me? I was like, man, I, I was super nervous. So when I was in junior high, I was a runt. I was itty-bitty. I was basically this big. And I was tiny person. I hadn't really grown up yet. I was, as you know, I was known as a late bloomer. That was me. And my, I had two older brothers. If you are the youngest sibling in the house, raise your hand. I want to see you. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Young, youngest siblings, you got my respect, okay? Youngest siblings in the house. I was the youngest. I am the youngest of three boys, three sons. God bless my mother and all of, all of the gum and hair and all of that. Um, but... I always, as younger siblings here know, you're always looking up to your older brothers and older sisters, right? Looking up to my older brothers. Yeah. Someone's like, bah, who's he kidding? Yeah. But I remember constantly thinking about what am I going to do, especially going from junior high to high school. I had to really make some important decisions. I'm thinking to myself, okay, I started playing music because of one of my brothers, and that's it. He, he was a musician. He was an incredible musician, brilliant. He'd play piano. He'd write songs and stuff. So when I was really, really little, I would play and learn piano. I would do all this stuff, and, and I hated it. I absolutely hated going to piano practice. I, it was one of those things, I just want to be like Casey. But when the commitment came in, I was like, dang it, I shouldn't have wanted to be like Casey. And then I have my other brother, Clay, who's like the jock, tall, handsome guy, right? And he's like, you know, like could have gotten elected prom king, that kind of guy. And he loved sports. He loved football. He was a quarterback all through high school. He did all that stuff. And so I played football. Why? Because I was my own person? No. I played football because I wanted to be like my brother Clay. I wanted, to be, I wanted them to be proud of me. I wanted them to be impressed by me. So the dilemma when you're in junior high and you're very, very tiny and you have been playing football with other tiny people, so it's okay, when you get into high school, things get a little tricky, right? You got the big boys there. And I was like, I am going to get squished. <laughs> this is a terrible mistake for me to go into high school and still play football. So I had an identity crisis. Someone here say identity crisis. identity crisis. Some of you in this room know what I'm talking about. Maybe others not so much. But I remember, not, like, I was like, Lord, what am I going to do with my life? And it's so silly. You're thinking about high school and you're thinking about sports. And, you know, you're not going to make it anyway. Sorry. But, you know, that's, that's like the reality. I wish someone, well, maybe not. Maybe that wouldn't have been nice to hear. But I remember, like, the reality of the situation is these small decisions were huge decisions to me. And I just want to tell you, the older I get, even the decisions you make in college, some of the decisions you make you think are huge, gigantic decisions, but they're really not the most important things in the world. They're not the most important decisions. But I remember having this identity crisis, and there was basically a pathway. Am I going to go do this? 
am I going to be like a musician, artistic, and be in the band and, and play trombone? Ew, yuck. Like, am I going to do that? Or am I going to go in football and potentially get squished and turned into jello? And so I remember wrestling and wrestling, and I just like, I, I remember crying out to God. And he remember it was a beautiful moment. He spoke to me, and basically I was like, I'm going to be my own man. And so what did I do? I joined the swim team. Yes. You join the swim team when you know you're bad at all other sports. But that was my path in life. Instead of being on the basketball court, instead of being on the football field, I chose to wear a Speedo. And I chose to be a swimmer. Now, that's a long story we'll save for another time. But we're going to open up our Bibles to Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Now, I want to forewarn you, we are not talking about me today. We probably talked about too much of me last week, so we're going to take a break. I saw some hilarious responses from your faces, so thank you for that. We're going to take a break on me. We're going to talk about a real man of God, and he goes by the name Daniel. I, my parents actually named me after this Daniel. Does not mean, like, I'm not fit to untie this guy's sandals. This is a man of God, and this book having nothing to do with me just because of the way this man served God. This is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible because of how he was committed and, and absolutely did not waver in his resolve. But let's look in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to go through some timeline here. We're going to go through the scripture, and then we're going to try our best to tie it all together in the end. You ready? Daniel chapter 1, let's start in verse 3. Then the king ordered... Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen. All the tribes of Judah, the chief of staff, renamed them, and these were their Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel, this is our key verse for today. But Daniel, everybody say but. <laughs> but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you for wisdom. Teach us your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said what is happening here is fascinating. King Nebuchadnezzar has moved his kingdom and they have taken over Judah. They've taken over all the Israelites, all these people, and they've put them into slavery. Many people were killed. And, but Nebuchadnezzar in this giant world superpower of Babylon has moved in and parked their kingdom right in this spot that Judah used to reside. And they basically started calling the shots. Now, 
here's some background here is you've got Daniel and these guys. These are four Hebrew boys that were very, very special and that the Lord had anointed. But Nebuchadnezzar isn't just interested in wiping out everybody. He had a very particular plan, a very smart plan. Nebuchadnezzar was way smarter than your typical world dominator, right? So when you want to take over the world, okay, any of you might be interested in doing that in the future, here's some advice. When you want to take over the world, you can move in with military might and take it by force, but if you want to truly take over a nation, you have to first destroy its culture. You have to somehow change the identity of everyone living in that land. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar tries to do. See, he doesn't just move in and say, do what I say. He actually institutes an education system beyond what the world had ever seen. So it kind of looks like something like this. We are, like, I, I welcome you, ladies and gentlemen, to Babylon State University orientation. So welcome. I'm glad you have signed up for the most prestigious school in all the world. You're going to get all the lessons and the best training that you can possibly get. You're going to get the best professors you can possibly get. This is the school you want to be a part of. So congratulations. You guys have come to orientation at BSU, Babylon State University. We have the most advanced courses you're going to ever find. You can take a class in sexual science and anatomy. No other university offers anything like this. See, our society is well beyond our years. You can take political science. Yes, yes, yes. You can take animal science. You can learn about animals. Yeah, pretty sweet. Something that no other university, no other government was interested in teaching their people. Nobody is this advanced. You could also learn about government and leadership. You could even take a class on how to take over a nation 101. Yeah, if you're interested. Why did that get the most applause? If you're interested in that kind of thing, take a class in how to take over a nation 101, taught by Nebuchadnezzar King himself. Or, if you really want to stretch your mind, you're going to come and you're going to take a language class and you're going to learn how to write because no one in the world does that yet. We're going to teach you how to write in this cuneiform script. You're going to use these reeds. You're going to write these little symbols on clay tablets and we're going to actually teach you language because there's nothing more sophisticated in this, in this modern time and in Babylon. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar does, guys. He doesn't just take you out and wipe out. He, what he does is in order to conquer a culture, he implements an education system. And slowly but surely, his idea and his goal for Daniel and his friends is to slowly take away their identity to the point where they don't even remember that they're Hebrews anymore. Guys, education can be a very dangerous weapon. It can be a very, very dangerous tool if you don't have the reason to think through things that are insane and things that are true, right? And also, when you come to BSU, Babylon State University, you, in order to be in our classes, in order to afford tuition basically you can come for free we'll we'll feed you how cool is that no tuition but in order for you to stay here you have to worship our gods 
come to Babylon State University, you must worship our gods. One of these gods that Babylon worshipped every single week, every single day, was the god Baal. And when you worshipped God, the, the god of Baal, or you, you, when you worshipped Baal, this, this Babylonian god, what you would do is basically there was a temple with all of these gross symbols, all of these statues and, and sexual things. You would basically purchase a prostitute and you would have sexual acts with them so that you could please the god Baal. That was how you, that's what he was like. That's what appeased him. They thought if we, if we can appease his sexual desires, then he's going to bring rain and there's going to be produce in the land and all of that. We want to be blessed. That's, that was one wicked God that they served and that they worshipped. Another God that they served and worshipped was 10,000 times worse. You see, if you go to Babylon University, you have to worship the God Molech. And there is nothing more vile, nothing more horrible and disgusting than the rituals that these people performed, true history that these people performed when they would worship Molech. Molech was the god of basically a king, and he demanded absolute submission to under his reign. And in order to show your submission to him, what these people would perform were child sacrifices. What you would do is you would take your child, your beautiful newborn baby, and you would burn them alive in a furnace. Many times they would take a bronze statue that had a figure of a man but a head as a bull or an animal. And that bronze statue had hands that were held out in front and they would set this bronze statue on fire. It would be scalding hot. And you would place your newborn infant in the hands of this bronze statue and watch it scream as it burns itself to death. And to make it even worse, the family and relatives were not allowed to show any signs of emotion. Evil stuff. Evil stuff. If there was any groan or tear from the mother or father, the sacrifice would be considered invalid. Their child would still die, and more than likely they would have to offer up their next infant to appease the bloodthirsty Molech. Wikipedia cites different sources that say that some sacrifice rituals would get so out of hand that people in a frenzy would sacrifice up to 300 children at one time. They would beat drums, play instruments to drown out the sound of their screams so the city wouldn't have to listen to it. Guys, this is evil to the highest degree. There is nothing more vile and horrible and evil and demonic than destroying the innocents, destroying innocent children that have done nothing wrong. Guys, this is the wickedness of Babylon. This is what this nation practiced, and these were things that they demanded all of these Hebrews when they imp were implemented into this university. They said, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you have to abide by our rules and our customs and our laws. And so what Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's plan is this. While Egypt prevailingly enslaves God's people, driving them with hard labor resulting in poverty. You remember the Israelites in Egypt. Babylon is way worse. Babylon seduces and gradually swallows up your identity to the point that those bound by its system no longer discern it or fight it. When you've lost that many children, 
there's no going against this culture that's steamrolling God's people. Guys, but Daniel. But Daniel refused to practice these customs and defile himself. And this is where our hero enters the scene. Daniel and his friends are Hebrew boys, and their names, they are th- this beautiful, what the truth about who they are and their names and their identity. You see, you know how each name, your name actually has a definition, has a meaning to it. E- each name really is, is a symbol of a phrase or an idea. And so Daniel's name, first of all, he's got a, Daniel's got an awesome name. Just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Pretty sweet name. Because of the meaning. The meaning of Daniel is a great name. The meaning is Dan I-L. Whenever you see that E-L, if your name has that E-L in it, more than likely it has a Hebrew root, and that L means God. And so Daniel's name means God is my judge. God is my judge. And Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. So what do you do? Guys, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Put yourself in his shoes. What do you do when your nation has been taken over and they are forcing you to practice these horrible, wicked customs? How do you remain faithful behind enemy lines? Let me ask you another question. How do you come to a secular university in the United States and remain faithful to Jesus when every single professor out there is against you, against your faith, says that just because you believe in Jesus, you're out of your mind, you, be, you live in la-la land, that your faith is a myth and the Bible was changed a billion different times and it was made up and how could you believe such fairy tales? How do you do it? How do you come to university and trust them to teach you a thing or two so you can get a nice shiny white paper that says diploma on it, right? How do you go behind enemy lines and still be faithful to your God? We're going to get there, guys. What Daniel does and his friends is this. So first of all, let's talk about Daniel's friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their names have beautiful meanings to them. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. Mishael means who is like the Lord. And Azariah means God helps us. So guys, look at this. Imagine walking into the cafeteria at BSU or, or, the, or the student union. And you get your Chick-fil-A, you know, and you sit down. And you're, you know, a Babylonian person. And you're sitting down next to Daniel and these three guys. And you're like, so I worship Baal and I worship Molech, but, but who do you worship? Well, we worship the one true God. We worship Yahweh. And like, well, tell me, tell me about this God. And, and in the names of these three boys, you've got sermons, guys. You've got beautiful messages of God's character that shine out not only from their personalities, but from their very names. Hananiah speaks up and says, you know what? My name means the Lord shows grace. That means when you mess up and you go to God and you say, I'm sorry, he'll forgive you. That's what my God is like. Like, really? Wow. Well, what about you? Well, Mishael says, well, my, my name means who is like the Lord. That means that th- th- there's, my God is completely and utterly unique. There's no one like him. There is absolutely no God like my God. So you guys have the same gods, right? Yes, we worship the same gods. He shows grace, and he's absolutely unique. No, one's like, no one is like him. And Azariah speaks up and says, my, my name means God helps us. So when you're in trouble, my God is the God that comes and rescues you. 
right in just a conversation at Chick-fil-A, you've got a sermon gospel presentation from the names of these four guys. Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does, and as you read the book of Daniel, particularly the first four chapters, it'll blow your mind. Nebuchadnezzar, in order to take and hijack and steal these guys' identities, he says, you guys can't be named anything after your gods. Instead, you're going to be named after my gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in a brainwashing kind of way, he changes their names to mean something else because he knows he can't just convince them. He has to slowly chip away at who they are as people, who they are as people in God's kingdom. Are y'all following me tonight? He changes their names to these names, Meshach, Abednego, and Shadrach. Daniel's name changes to Belteshazzar, which is a name that means I serve my master, Baal. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine this? Going from your name saying, God is my judge. I am, I belong, like, I don't have authority over myself. God has authority over me. My name's Daniel. God is my judge. That is what my name means. And then can you imagine being transformed and your name changing to I serve my master Baal. I love it because when you read the book of Daniel, he's, ta- he's the one who's authoring his book and he never refers himself to that name. He keeps his identity, I am Daniel. God is my judge. I belong to him. I don't, that, what that name means, God is my judge, that means, guys, I don't even belong to myself. I belong to him. My pleasures, my hopes, and my dreams, they matter to him, but they, his dreams matter way more to me than my dreams. I belong to him. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with, and Daniel really lived this out. And so when he, Nebuchadnezzar, in a futile effort, changes his name and says, you are now this Belteshazzar character. Guys, I want us to understand this. This is very important. In order for the devil to get glory out of you, his goal is to slowly steal away your identity from God. In order for the devil to get glory out of you, he has to rob your identity He has to hijack, if you will, your identity from God. The devil's goal is not simply to get rid of you. I want you to follow me here. The devil's goal is not just to kill you off and get rid of you and remove your piece from the the checkerboard or the chessboard, right? He doesn't want that. His goal is to convert you. His goal is to to convince you to fight for yourself rather than God and therefore be on his team and start playing on his team instead of God's. His goal, my friends, is to hijack your purpose. The devil's goal in your life is to rob your purpose from God and to rob it from you. Guys, this was Nebuchadnezzar's goal. But how does he do it? How does Nebuchadnezzar do this? So Nebuchadnezzar's name means something interesting as well. Let's study, let's look into what he is and who he is. Nebuchadnezzar's name, again, it's a derivative of his own gods that he worshipped. And his name means God of secrets, protect my crown. And right there, you have a window into the personality that Nebuchadnezzar had. He, you guys, you don't start the, the world-leading institution in education 
unless you are desperate to figure out the secrets of the world. Nebuchadnezzar's passion was to learn secrets and to get to be the most educated person in the world. And so this is what the devil does, right? When you join Babylon State University, he teaches you actually real stuff. You learn real truths about government. You learn real truths about science. But he slips in his ideology in the mixture there to where it confuses you and you cannot separate the learning that's good. You're learning actual math. Does this sound like university I'm talking about? <laughs> you're learning actual math. You're learning actual science. But the professors sneak in an ideology to try to steal you away and hijack your purpose. This is what you face every single day. This is what you face. This is what you're up against, is this war against your purpose and your character. Nebuchadnezzar says, God of secrets, protect my crown. He is desperately asking his gods to protect his knowledge, to protect his crown, and to protect the institution that he's created. Now, when you come to university, I want to ask you this question. What would you say the secret to happiness is? Church kids, yay. No church kid answers aloud. No church kid answers aloud. Because it's just too easy. It's just too easy, you know what I'm saying? We got to think. We got to think together. What is the secret to happiness? Guys, when you go on the street and you interview people and you throw a microphone in front of their face, you know a bunch of churches do that. What is, what is your goal in life? What is your dream? Why do you come to university? You come to university to, so I had like a seventh grade teacher, you know what she said? She said, everyone, seventh graders, the meaning of life is to go on vacation. And I'm going, okay, cool. That vacation sounds awesome. Let's, let's go to Disney World. Great. But she's like, think about it. You go to school, you get an education just so you can get a what? A diploma, you get your diploma, that hard-earned diploma, and with that diploma, hopefully you go out and then you get a what? A job, a career, and with that career, what happens then? You, that month check comes in, you work in that career so that you can receive what? Money, and when you get your money, you're going to take that money and you're going to go to Disney World and go on what? Vacation. Guys, the meaning of life is to go on vacation. Duh, right? Thank you, seventh grade teacher in Tomball, Texas. I appreciate it. <laughs> what I'm talking about is when you meet a person, any given person, when you ask them, what are you on this earth to do? And they're like, I don't know, be happy. And guys, this is the culture that you live in. Our culture lives off of this crazy word. I just want to be happy. I live to be happy. Why do I go and get a job? So I can be happy. I can have, like, put, name your poison. Name whatever it is you value most. I just want to get married. Yes? <laughs> I just want a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? I just want to have children one day. I want a career one day, right? Because there's this because behind the scenes, there is this yearning and this desire. Guys, I just want to be happy. Now, let me ask you another question. Does God want you to be happy? Oh. We have some dissenters in the room. 
Does God want you to be happy? It's funny because the longer I wait, people change their answers. Yeah, girls preaching a sermon. Yeah, come on. Sounds good. <laughs> I imagine she's excellent to have in small group. Guys, let's pay very close attention to this. The world says this to you and I. Your highest goal is happiness. That's the narrative of the world. Your highest goal is happiness. And it's going to say whatever you are tempted by, that is what you are. The world says whatever you are tempted by, that is actually what you are. This is the message of the world. This is the lie of the world. Whatever you are tempted by, that is your inner self longing to be happy and you need to just give in. Because why on earth would you want to be unhappy? And so that temptation, the world's message to you and I, is that that, that thing that you're tempted by, that is who you are. And I want to say this tonight. If you are a guy and you have a same-sex attraction, the world is desperately trying to convince you what? That means you're gay. Just because you have a same-sex attraction. Right? Because the world says whatever you are tempted by, that's who you are. It wants you to immediately give up that fight so you can immediately be something else. Oh, you are struggle with this? Well, that must mean something about your character and identity. There's no grace. There's absolutely no grace in this lie. Are y'all with me? If you're a girl, you have same-sex attraction. The world says you are a lesbian, and you better not fight it because that's who you are. You were born that way. That was what you were meant to be. There's no shame. There's no none of that. You just listen at all. You just dismiss all those haters, right? Guys, the world is desperately trying to convince us that whenever we are tempted by a thing, mysteriously and magically, our identity then is supposed to transform into something else, and it doesn't make any sense. Guys, our culture is getting so insane. It is getting so ridiculous that you can be a 10-year-old girl and you can have a feeling and think that you should be a boy. And now our culture is so insane where it would, they would say to that person, well, you know what? You can be a boy. Just pay all of this money and get this procedure and abuse this child and you can become a boy. You see the madness? And this is, I want to go into this a little bit further. Guys, temptation, listen very carefully to me, temptation is not a sin. Being tempted is not a sin. I want to tell you, if you're tempted by things you are absolutely ashamed of, you shouldn't be. Temptation is not a sin. Temptation in that moment when you're tempted, that doesn't mean you've done anything wrong yet. It's just that flesh, inner man, that fallen nature that the Bible describes that is warring against your spirit. Are y'all with me? Temptation is not a sin. Temptation does not mean that you failed. When you get in that moment and you have thoughts or urges or temptations in any way, nowhere does that mean you have already failed and that your identity is something else. 
Guys, the world says that whatever you are tempted by, that's who you are. But God says, whatever you are tempted by, that's who you precisely are not. What you are tempted by, the Bible teaches that that's who you aren't. That's literally who you aren't supposed to be. Remember, sin is not just a wrong thing that makes God mad. Sin is a violation of your purpose, who you were meant to be with Jesus. Sin violates that pathway to get closer to Jesus. It's not this arbitrary thing that he just doesn't like. He hates sin because it disrupts the dream he has for you. Are y'all with me? God says... The Bible teaches whatever you are tempted by, that is who you are not. Romans 7, 12, Paul is struggling with this. He's talking about struggling with temptation and struggling with sin. And he says these words, chapter 7, verse 20, if you want to look, at it, look it up later. He says, now, if I do what I do not want to do, he's talking about that temptation, that inner struggle, he says, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Later on in 8:28, he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his good purpose. What purpose is that? Your purpose, my friends, and my purpose is to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Amen. That is our purpose. That is your identity, to be conformed to the likeness of the glorious and precious son of God, Jesus Christ. The world is desperate to ruin you, my friends. It's desperate to, to make you believe that just because you struggle with a certain thing, then that must be who you really are on the inside. When the Lord is whispering you in your ear, the Holy Spirit's whispering in your ear saying, that thing you're tempted by, that's a reminder. That is a reminder of what you are not. That is a reminder that one day when you are with him, None of that temptation will be there anymore. It will be gone. It is a reminder that we are fallen. It's a reminder that we're selfish. It's a reminder that we need God. Temptation is that reminder that we desperately need Jesus. That we desperately, desperately need Jesus. Guys, if the, if the world has lied to you, I want to tell you tonight. If you have had an identity crisis and because you've struggled with a certain thing, you were convinced that you just might as well give in and be that thing, the Lord's dream for you is never that you just automatically give in. The Lord's dream is that you continue fighting, never, ever fighting that battle alone, but fighting it together in the body of Christ, in fellowship, in your small group. It's going to help pull you out of that mud. That's what we are here to do. Amen? But Daniel, this girl makes me happy. Please, can I date her? Please, pretty please with cherry on top. I think the Lord spoke to me in a dream, and I think we're going to get married one day. You laugh, but it happens, okay? Or a girl comes up to Smarter Peter. I, I just, he's so handsome, and I, I think I love him, actually, and, and, if you just please, like, let me date. He makes me what? He makes me happy. He makes me feel the warm fuzzies on the inside and all the butterflies and whatnot. Guys, what am I saying tonight? Identity does not come from your preferences. Identity comes from your purpose. 
Your identity in Christ does not come from your preferences. It comes from your purpose. Thirdly and lastly, I want to focus on the fact that God himself also has a name. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had a name that meant one thing. Those Hebrew boys had a name that meant one thing. Their identity was under crisis. It was under fire. But God himself also has a name. And, and the book from Daniel chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4 is an amazing story about, really, it's about Nebuchadnezzar the king. And he goes on this journey with God. The first thing that happens when the, when the Lord challenges Daniel and the guys and, and Daniel interprets this dream, it's this absolutely incredible story. Nebuchadnezzar is blown away and he's like, wow, Daniel, your God is the revealer of mysteries, he says in Daniel 2, 47. He, you're, so Nebuchadnezzar's definition of God is slowly starting to change because Nebuchadnezzar worships all these weird gods, all these false foreign gods. And then all of a sudden he's introduced to Jehovah. All of a sudden, he's interested, introduced to the God of the universe. And so he slowly starts to change his definition of who God is. The first encounter, he says, you're the revealer of mysteries. This Daniel's God revealed to him the impossible. And I'm amazed by this God of his. But he's not still, you see, that's not the full story. That's not the, the best definition of God. It's just the first step. Because Nebuchadnezzar still believes in all these other gods. He just thinks that Yahweh is the most impressive one. So there's this journey that God is taking him on to define who he really is. The second thing, Nebuchadnezzar changes his definition of God again when these three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar was furious at them because they did not bow at this statue. And what does he do? He takes his three boys and says, I'm going to throw you in this fiery furnace and I'm going to kill you if you do not bow to this statue. And the most amazing act of faith and courage they say, we do not know if God is going to rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow to these false idols and these false gods. Hallelujah. And you know what Nebuchadnezzar does? He throws these three boys into the same furnace that destroyed all of those children. But God did not allow his three children to perish. Nebuchadnezzar, in a mad attempt to destroy all of these other children, he finds three Hebrew boys and tries to kill them, but they stood to their feet unharmed. And he looks inside that furnace. He's going, what's going on? There's four guys in there. We only, we, we only threw in three. And he says that fourth man looks like a, the son of the gods. Jesus Christ in the Old Testament standing with these three boys. I wonder what the conversation they had was about. Wouldn't that be so cool to be in that furnace? And Jesus is going, guys, you did it. I, this is crazy. I can't believe it. It's awesome. They're just having a hangout together in a flipping furnace, having a hangout with Jesus. Man. And so Nebuchadnezzar freaks out, and his definition of God begins to change. He says, this God who performs miracles, he's the most high God. In this context here is Daniel's God is a God that performs miracles and saves his people. Right? And thirdly, as the chapters continue on, as, Belta, as Nebuchadnezzar's writing chapter 4 himself, he explains and describes Daniel's God as the only pure God. He says the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So again, Nebuchadnezzar's clinging to the fact that there's all these gods 
but his definition of Yahweh is getting elevated and elevated each step. And so the Lord is churning his heart slowly but surely and, and giving him a fresh new identity that matters and that's true. And so even if you're a king, you cannot escape God. That's what I find so fascinating about this story. And so I'm getting sidetracked. I'm going to keep going. And so Nebuchadnezzar changes again. And finally, in, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says this. He is the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar's definition of God finally comes full circle. And he, this basically he's saying he is the rightful king of the universe. A king who has a hard heart slowly churned, slowly molded, so he can be a friend of God, finally. I believe God has many, many wonderful names. It doesn't seem that he minds which name you're going to call him. Number one, as long as his name that you're calling him is accurate, king of the universe, lord of lords, king of kings, right? And secondly, that you only call upon him and no other god. And guys, that's the final point that I am making tonight. Guys, how do we know our purpose? Where are we going right now? What are we doing? Guys, there's two roads here. There's a road to happiness and a constant striving and struggle to make yourself happy to no avail. Or there's a pathway to God who then makes you joyous and happy if you surrender and follow him. And there's just the biggest misconception in the world is if I'm, I see young people all the time, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I remember Jeremiah Sawyer, when he got saved, he said this, Lord, if I never have fun ever again, like that's fine, you're worth it. And that was this, this moment he had with God, like I, you're worth it, God. I, I've lived my life wanting to have fun, but even if I don't have fun ever again, I'm going to serve you anyways. And guess what? Jeremiah has had more fun than he's ever had in his whole life by his own words, right? And so here's, here's the lie is you have to seek after happiness, and that's what's going to fulfill you. You just need to try hard enough to be happy. But what the Bible says is if you seek after God, if you chase after God, and you don't worry about this happiness stuff, the peace he gives you will overwhelm you, and the joy he gives you in hard times will be beyond your wildest dreams. If you seek after the happiness, you're going to always end up short. You're going to always end up wanting. But if you chase after God, if you chase after Jesus, then that happiness and that joy is a byproduct of walking with him and not a prime product. That walking with Jesus is going to fill you. I'm going to ask the band to return, and we're going to close. Guys, I believe many of us have wrestled with this, having a sort of inside and inward identity crisis. Who am I supposed to be? What is my life supposed to mean? What am I supposed to do? Where are you? Guys, the question for tonight is, where are you going right now? Where are you going? What road are you on? Are we on the pathway to, to happiness that selfishly 
is going to drain you because of this never-ending yearning, this never-ending trying to fill yourself? Or are we on a road to holiness where true happiness is found? Those of you in this room that have struggled, you've struggled, and you're saying, Daniel, the world has desperately tried to convince me that because I struggle with this, I therefore am under this group. I am therefore under this title that I have to live my life. Guys, it's a trap. If you try to change your identity, especially your sexual identity, the world's going to turn you into a dog. They're going to kick you around and spoil you and demand that you go and abide by their rules. You will never be satisfied. You will constantly be yearning and looking for an answer. But if you have these struggles, if you have this identity stuff, and you give it to Jesus, I want to tell you something. Did you know that Jesus on the cross means that you were worth dying for? Christ on the cross says it all. I don't care what you struggle with. I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care what you are afraid of doing tomorrow. Jesus on the cross says it all. Your identity belongs in him. And guys, our absolute for today is that when you truly know who God is, that's when you can truly know yourself. When you truly know who God is, he doesn't erase your identity. He gives you a fresh, brand new one. In him, in Christ, your spiritual address is in Christ, and he will give you that joy that you so desperately wanted. Let's stand tonight.